Lord, thank you so much for uh, your great goodness. Lord, we've seen, we've sung about, we've learnt about your goodness and your greatness, your majesty, and we thank you for that. And Father, we ask that as we turn to your word again, to look at more facets of your character, would you please speak to us? Father, I'm so mindful that we are trying to, as, as finite beings, trying to understand the infinite. And Lord, we can't do that fully. But would you, by your Holy Spirit, expand our understanding, stretch our minds to be able to grasp as much as we can on this side of eternity. Uh, and Lord, through it all, would you strengthen our faith? Would you have the glory? And Lord, would you enable us to trust you more because we know how wonderful and how great you are. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're on session three in our series looking at the character of God. We have looked at some beautiful characteristics of God so far. Um, if you remember, we looked at the fact he doesn't change. And that's so important. The fact he's eternal. He has always been. He always will be. We've looked at his righteousness, his justice and his wrath. And today we're looking at uh, the omnis. But before we do, um, I want to reiterate, as I have said before, that all of God's attributes are shared by all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are, all three members are equally and perfectly divine. And I will also say again, in case anyone missed it last time, that we must hold all of God's attributes in balance together. We will um, go wrong if we emphasize one or more of his attributes at the expense of the others. God is infinite in his whole character. So if we underemphasize any part of his perfect and beautiful character, then we are devaluing him in whatever measure we reduce him in his attributes. Similarly, overemphasis of part of the character of God leads to error as our view of God then becomes unbalanced. And I think it's a wonderful thing that our God is perfectly balanced in his character. The only being who is, I guess, there's nothing missing from his character and everything about him is infinitely good and infinitely right. So, as I said, today we're looking at the, the omnis, if you like, the fact that uh, he is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And he's omnipotent, meaning he's all powerful. And these are lovely characteristics that give us great reassurance and strengthen our faith. First, his omnipresence. Uh, which can be defined as God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. God is spirit in his nature and is everywhere at all times. There is nowhere that God is not. If you consider the vast expanse of the universe with its billions and billions of stars and planets, and God is there, but is also 
beyond the universe. The fact that God is Lord of space and cannot be limited is seen by the fact that he created it, so he must be greater than his creation. Moses spoke of this in Deuteronomy uh, 10.14. He said, indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. And then Jeremiah also spoke of it in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so that I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? That's actually quite an important statement because in Old Testament times, the various nations around had gods that they were that were local. They had gods of the hills, had gods of the valleys, they had gods of particular cities or towns. But our God is everywhere. He is universal and beyond the universe. And that's that's a fundamentally important statement that Jeremiah made uh, in his day. I guess the exception is that God the Son, in his humanity as Jesus, chose to be restricted as a man to being limited as we are whilst we're on the earth. That I think is staggering humility on Jesus' part because he had spent eternity past being unlimited before even space and time were created and that he should choose a point in time to take on the limitations of human flesh so that we could be saved. It's amazing, but it's glorious. And he spent some 33 years in the land of Israel, limited in his humanity for us. That's not to diminish Jesus' deity, in which his divine characteristics are still fully present. Nevertheless, whilst God is everywhere, it's also worth noting that God cannot be contained to any space, however large, when King Solomon was building the temple, he said in 2 Chronicles 2 verse 6, But who is able to build him a temple, since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a temple, except to burn sacrifice before him? That also implies that there is no special place where we need to go to have access to God's presence. We can meet him anywhere, which is wonderful. We should also state that God in his whole being is everywhere. We don't just find a small part of God here in Maidstone and another part in Chatham or in Rochester. God is everywhere. All of God is everywhere. God can't be limited in that way. But equally, uh, we need to guard against thinking of God as just being extremely large, sort of somewhat bigger than the universe. God has no spatial limits, and he still existed in his omnipresence even before time and space were created. And we are very bound by time and space, but God isn't. And one day when we have our resurrection bodies and are in his presence forever, I'm sure we will understand more. But I also suspect we'll be even more in awe of him than we are now, because we'll see even more the the greatness of his majesty, the awesome nature of his infinity. 
it'll be wonderful. There's nowhere in the entire universe where one can flee from God's presence. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm. And in verses 7 to 10, um, we have this. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Now for us as believers, that gives us great reassurance, because wherever we are in this world, we are never away from God. That means that we can worship him wherever we are. We can pray to him anywhere, knowing that he is present to hear and to answer prayer. We are never beyond the scope of his sustaining, protecting and healing power because he's there. The wonderful thing about God's omnipresence is that he is present to sustain us and bless us wherever we happen to be, but also to judge and to discipline us as is needed. <clears throat> it's complete folly to think that we can do something in secret that God will not see. Others might not see it, but God does. Surely it's far better to do that which will please God at all times so that he can reward our faithfulness. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, verse 3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God's great purpose is that he will dwell with man. And that's those who are believers, at least. And his plan of salvation has been working to bring this to a glorious climax that will last forever. God wants relationships with his people. And gloriously, that, that starts now as we are able to come to him in prayer. For the unbeliever, however, God's omnipresence is very challenging. Because just as we as believers cannot escape the presence of God, nor can the unbeliever. God knows every deed, every sin that is committed, even when it's done in secret. God's judgment must fall on the unbeliever because he has not believed in Jesus and applied his blood to his life. Amos had a chilling word for Israel when they were unrepentant in Amos 9, 1 to 4. Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. And how crucial it is to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour while we are still living and while we have opportunity. So let's move on and let's turn now to God's omniscience, that he knows everything. 
And this can be defined as God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. So say that again. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. And I think the first part of this definition in itself is mind-boggling because God is infinite and yet he knows himself fully. Hallelujah. God is unique because it takes an infinite person to know infinity. And we, of course, don't and can't. But he has graciously told us a good deal about himself in the Bible. And he's shown us what he is like in the person of Jesus. He's also graciously given us his Holy Spirit to help us in that. God knows everything and nothing is hidden from his knowledge. And this involves every human that has, uh, every, everything that every human has ever thought or ever done or ever will. But, but God also has complete knowledge of all facets of the universe and beyond. God knows all things that exist and all that will ever happen. We saw a bit of Psalm 139 just now, but let's look at another bit. Uh, in verses 1 to 4, we have a lovely account of the extent of God's knowledge of each one of us. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And it's then no wonder that uh, the conclusion of the psalmist is in verse six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, if you then multiply that up to embrace every person in all of history, we really do have amazing omniscience. And we see this amazing knowledge also in Hebrews 4, verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knows every creature as well. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 6, verse 8, when he said that the Father knows what we need before he, we ask him. But yet he still loves us to ask and to be involved. He wants to be involved in our lives. A good human father knows what is best for his child, but he still loves to have his child come to him to ask for good things. Then in Matthew 10, 30, Jesus said that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He didn't say that God counts them because that would imply that there's a time when God didn't know the number of hairs on your head because he would be in the process of counting them. No, he says they are numbered. God, God, God knows. They're numbered all the time because he knows the, the number despite numerous brushes and washes of the hair or people going bald or whatever it is. But he knows that not just for each one of us, but for each one of us. For everyone and the bible tells us that god names all of the stars and we know that there are billions upon billions of them yet despite the challenge to find enough names god has done it and he never gets confused as to which is which 
equally, he never gets confused over people. He knows each one totally. He never forgets or learns anything because otherwise there'd be a point when he doesn't know everything. I mean, it's even more amazing than that because God knows things that might have happened but do not actually happen. When we have a choice before us, God knows what would have happened had we chosen a path other than the one that we decided to take. There's an example here in Matthew 11, verse 21, where Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that, have, that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes. Jesus knew what their attitude would have been had they seen the miracles that he was performing. God knows all things that are possible because God has infinite knowledge. And he's always fully aware of everything. God never has to learn anything because he already knows it. God never forgets anything because he can't do that and still be omniscient, nor does his knowledge ever fade. And that includes our sins, even when forgiven. God does say that he will not remember our sins in Isaiah 43:25, But that means that God uh, will never bring them up against us or let the knowledge of our sins play any part in the way he relates to us. God cannot forget them. He can't be unaware of them. Otherwise, he would be less than omniscient. But surely that should spur us on to live godly lives that don't offend him, because every sin has caused him offence, even though he graciously forgives those who repent and come to him for forgiveness. As we relate to other people, we often hide aspects of our lives that we're not proud of. So we tend to disclose and talk about the things that put us in a good light. We would hate every, anyone, every, everyone, or even anyone, I guess, to know everything that we've done or said or thought. But God does know everything about us and about everyone else who has ever lived. What is so amazingly good of God is that despite all that, arguably, I guess, because of all that, he sent his son to die for us and save us. And despite all of our failings, he chooses to love us so intensely in a way that no one has ever loved us, however close they might be. God's total knowledge of us would be utterly disconcerting, even terrifying, were it not for the fact that God does love us so much and that he's gone to such lengths to bring us into a relationship with him. So for us as believers, God's omniscience is gloriously reassuring because he knows what we are like, and yet he loves us regardless. He will never find out some hidden sin away in our past that means he'll be so shocked that he'll feel obliged to disown us. He takes us on as his sons and daughters in the full knowledge of what we are like. And I think that God's omniscience is also a reason to believe in eternal security once we are truly saved, because God knows what we will do after we come to faith in Jesus. So there'll never be a time when he will say that he didn't know that, well, didn't know you can do that, and so therefore lose our salvation. 
And because God knows everything, there needs to be no pretense in a relationship with God. He knows us utterly. We can be ourselves while still striving to live for him, for him, as we should. But for the unbeliever, God's omniscience is awesome and awful. God knows the unbeliever just as well as he does the believer. He knows every sin, every bad thought, word, and deed. He knows fully every detail of the rejection of the offer of salvation that can be found in Jesus and in him alone. There will come a judgment for the unbeliever that will be completely just and right. There'll be no mitigating circumstances, no plea bargaining, because the judge will know every aspect of each person's life and will respond with total accuracy and justice. No one will be able to query the judgment that God pronounces on the unbeliever. God knows every opportunity that each person had to repent during their lifetime. Each time the Holy Spirit was seeking to draw them to Christ and the times when they chose to reject Jesus as Savior. It's sobering, but we know that God is fully righteous in every respect and will do right. And then finally for today, I want to look at God's omnipotence, that he is almighty and all-powerful. God's omnipotence means that he is able to do all his holy will. God has no external constraints on his decisions, and he has the power to do everything that he decides to do. God's omnipotence means that he is able to do all his holy will. God has no external constraints on his decisions, and he has the power to do everything that he decides to do. I think it's at this point that we, we should rejoice that he is a good God, because if he were less than good in any respect, his power would be terrifying. God's power is unlimited, and he can do all things. Thankfully, this sits alongside his love, so that he's not a harsh dictator. He's exerted phenomenal power in creating the universe just by speaking the word. Yet he cares deeply for each one of his children, even for each sparrow, as we read in, in, uh, in the, the Gospels. The extent of God's power is such that it is folly in the extreme to doubt his ability to cope with caring for the small or large details of our lives. So often we limit God in our minds, thinking that, well, he can't quite cope with every situation that faces us. Perhaps that some problems are more than he can deal with or too trivial, so he's not somehow involved. It's God who gives us our every breath. So he has the power to look after us in every way that we need. Although in his love, he doesn't always give us everything that we want. Just as a good parent, won't give his children everything that they want. The crucial question, I guess, is whether we will trust him to look after us because he, what he, knows is, he knows what is best. God's power is infinite because he is an infinite being. So it's no wonder that Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 26, that with God, all things are possible. Um, he said, with God, Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God 
all things are possible. And then he, he says that again in Mark 27, that Jesus looked at them and said, with men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And then Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 20 uh, to 21, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Did you notice that the verse referred to God doing exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think? Compared to God's greatness, we are so limited that to him be the glory that he is so infinitely mighty. And that's so reassuring for us because we know that in the spiritual battle that we all face, God is and has to be victorious because for God to be less than victorious would diminish his character. But there is a day coming when he will deal very decisively with his enemies. Satan and the hordes of demons will be conquered and cast into the lake of fire forever. And when Jesus comes to judge the world, no one and nothing will be able to stop him from doing it. No one will be able to contradict what he says. And when Jesus rules in the millennium, he will rule with power and authority, but with all goodness and love. God has the power to ensure that all his plans and purposes will be brought to fruition and nothing and no one will hinder him when he knows that the time is right for it to happen. In the meantime, it's his grace that delays his judgment because he wants more people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And God's infinite power is such that he's not limited only in doing what he's actually done, but he can do more than what he actually does. For example, John the Baptist uh, spoke of this in Matthew 3, 9. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. God didn't actually change the stones, but he could have done. And God could have destroyed Israel many times when they disobeyed him, but he chose not to, thus keeping his covenant with them. And God will always do what is right and best, only he has the power to do it. But what's surprising to some is that God's almighty power does not actually mean that he can do anything and everything, because there are some things that he cannot do. And sadly, there are some things that we can do that he can't. And that's why our definition speaks of God being able to do all his holy will. So, for example, God cannot sin. He cannot lie. God cannot deny his holy character. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone, as we learn from James 1.13. Hallelujah. God cannot cease to be God or cease to exist. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. Because God cannot die. And because he can't die, it's one reason why God's son had to put on humanity so that in that humanity, he could die for our sins. Jesus could not and did not die in his deity. 
And God cannot act in a way that is inconsistent with any of his attributes. And that applies to all of God's attributes, for they have to exist together. That's why I've said every time we must hold all of God's attributes in balance. It's truly wonderful, I think, that he can't do such things, because in that we know that he is fully trustworthy. But it's God's infinite power that is what holds the world together and keeps it spinning as it should. It's he who gives us every breath that we breathe, and he provides food, sunshine, rain on the earth. Hebrews 1.3 speaks of Jesus as God's son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image uh, of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. It's Jesus who is holding everything together by the word of his power. Then in Colossians uh, 1, 16 to 17, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. If God dozed off for a moment, the whole thing would fall apart. But hallelujah, he's always there. And he's always holding it together in his amazing omnipotence. And for us as believers, God's omnipotence is wonderful. Uh, we know that he's able to answer our prayers. He's able to provide for us uh, with what we need for life. He is able and without doubt he will conquer Satan and eventually will destroy sin and death and ensure that all wrongs will be righted. And gloriously, he's able to bring us to our eternal home with him as the bride of Christ and to give us our resurrection bodies that will last for eternity. He's able to keep us secure in our salvation and to take us home to be with him in the rapture. He can keep us from fear because we know we have a God who is more than able to do all these things. And he will sustain this earth until he knows it's time for the new heavens and the new earth. That takes a whole load of fear off us, a whole load of worry. We can trust him. But for the unbeliever, God's omnipotence is awesome, as are his other attributes. Despite men face, uh, shaking their fists at God now, or ignoring him or opposing him, God will have the final say. He will have the victory over his enemies. No one will be able to resist God and get away with it. And when Jesus returns and deals with the massed troops at Armageddon, no one will be able to oppose him. When the great white throne comes, no one will be able to stand against Jesus and his judgment. It's utterly foolish to try and oppose God. And many people will discover that to their cost when it's too late. So as we've looked at these three attributes of God today, we have seen how gloriously limitless God is. And it's such a privilege that this limitless God wants relationship day by day with us limited creatures. As his children, he wants to be involved in our lives, to listen to our prayers, to provide for our needs, and to fill us with his Holy Spirit and then to use us as we seek to serve him. God doesn't need our help, but in his wisdom, 
he's chosen to enlist us in his work on this earth. And what amazing grace that is. God looks at the long term and he's training us now to be the people that he wants us to be for eternity future. Are we making the most of that training so that we have a vibrant relationship with him now? Or are we just doing our own thing and involving him when we get stuck? And as we consider his omnipresence, his omniscience and his omnipotence, let's live for him each day, walk with him, talk with him, so that it'll be a natural transition to that fuller relationship beyond these short years that we have on this earth. And as with all of God's attributes, they should lead us to worship him and to live, to want to live for him more wholeheartedly. We have a truly amazing God and we will be eternally grateful to him for showing us his love in Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for these tremendous attributes. Lord, they are amazing, they're daunting, they're awesome, but they're so reassuring. And we thank you so much that, Lord, you, you are who you are, that you are such an amazing God. Help us to live for you, to live with you, to worship you and give you the glory that's due to your name for the staggeringly amazing God that you are. Help us to ponder these things. Lord, stretch our minds as we think through them and help us to trust you more because we know that with all these things, you are absolutely trustworthy and you're so good. Thank you. Amen.